some people in the line for the bathroom. So, okay. In terms of what the Buddha learned about using cross-questionings as a teaching tool, <clears throat> in the book I was able to ferret out nine different instances of or types of situations in which he would use cross-questioning. Six of them are particularly interesting. I'll focus on those. Um, one, it's often useful if you're looking into the Dharma and the suttas to see, is there anything in the Vinaya or the disciplinary rules that corresponds to what's going on in the way the Buddha taught, taught the Dharma to people in general? How did he formulate the disciplinary rules in, in a way that, was, that would offer some insight? And this is one area where that is the case. One of the types of cross-questioning they have is a monk is accused of offense and he denies having committed, and so the monks have to cross-question him. Now in the process of cross-questioning him, they first have to ask another monk who is an expert in the Vinaya about this, this particular issue, the, the rules around this particular issue. What are the rules? In other words, you establish what are the standards that the monk should be living up to. Now one of the reasons you have to do this is when a decision is going to be made as to whether the monk is guilty or not, it has to be a unanimous decision. Now you can't expect every monk to be up on all the rules. So you have to get everybody informed. Like if someone's going to be accused of having your lustful contact with somebody else, and they, they appoint a monk. Say, okay, you're the expert on this topic. What are the rules around lustful contact? And then the monk will go down the rules. And then you question him about different possible situations and how the rules might apply in those situations. Get everybody up to speed. And at the same time, you're establishing a standard. This is the type of behavior that should be happening. And this is the type that should not be happening. Then they turn around and said, I would like to talk to you about this issue. And it's interesting for the monks being accused. They can say, no, I'm not going to discuss this. Except for one day in the year, the very end of the rains. Then you have to be open to all accusations at the end of the rains. Because that's, that's the ideal time for that, because the monks have been living together for three months. You get to know the accuser, you get to know the accused. And so the other members of the community can, community can have a sense of you know, who to trust, who not to trust. And so and then you start questioning the monk about his behavior. And they have a great example in the Ken where this one, one monk says he's accused of, an, of a serious offense. And he says, well, I, don't, I didn't do that serious offense, but I did do a lesser offense. So let me off. And he said, and they said, see, see how trustworthy I am? I do, I do admit my offenses. They said, wait a minute, you never told us about your lesser offense before. <laughs> so how are we going to trust you about your serious offense? <laughs> so the cross-questioning is aggressive. They really want to get to the point where they say, okay, can we really trust this person or not? Now this then gets into the cross-questioning that you're going to be doing of yourself. In other words, first you have to ask yourself, well, what are the Buddhist standards for this particular behavior? Do I live up to that? And then you have to take, play the role of devil's advocate and saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Is there anything that's missing? Like there's, a, there's a case where John Mahabha talks about how he got to a point in his meditation where he couldn't see any sensual desire. And so he said, well, what was, what was the insight that put an end to it? He couldn't think of any particular insight. It just seemed to have kind of withered away on its own. He said, okay, I can't believe this. And so he fashions up an, an image of an attractive person who follows him around for three or four days. And at the end of the, 
it's the fourth day he begins to realize he is a little bit attracted to this person. He's okay, okay, it's not gone. So that's that's how you play devil's advocate. You test yourself. So this is these are two patterns in the Vinaya and in the in the in the in the, in the Dharma that are that are parallel. You establish the standards and then you ask yourself, do I really live up to the standards? So you use that kind of cross questioning there. Another example of cross-questioning. This is, this is pretty typical. The Buddha, one of his disciples, makes a statement that a listener finds unclear. So the listener asks him to explain what the statement means and how it fits in with other statements. Um, the primary example of this one is the, king, the story of King Goravya. There was a young monk named Ratabala who came from a wealthy family. And he's spending the day in the king's pleasure garden. And the pleasure garden was not full of dancing women and things. It was a, it was a, it was a basically a game preserve. And so the king hears about this, so he comes to speak to the young monk. And he says, you know, I know your parents, I know your family. You, know, you were not poor, you didn't lose any of your relatives, you weren't sick. Why did you ordain? As if the only reason to ordain would be if you were poor or lost your relatives or were sick. And Ratabala says, there are four teachings that the Buddha gave that really struck me. He started, it's, the world is swept away, it does not endure, the world offers no shelter, there's no one in charge. The world has nothing of its own, one has to pass on, leaving everything behind and the world is insufficient, insatiable, a slave to craving. The king says, what do you mean? <laughs> and so Ratabala goes through and he questions the king. He gives an example and he questions the king. The first one about the world is swept away. He says, when you were young, were you strong? And the king says, yes, I was very strong. I thought Sometimes I thought I had the strength of two people. And now are you still strong? He said, no, I'm 80 years old. Sometimes I mean to put my foot in one place and go someplace else. And the Rajabala says, that's what I meant. Okay, th- and then, uh, the world offers no shelter, there's no one in charge. What, is, what does this mean? And Rajabala says, do you have a recurring illness? The king says, yes, I have a recurring wind illness, which is kind of like pain shooting through the body. And sometimes my friends and relatives are hanging around saying, this time he'll die, this time he'll die. <laughs> Can you imagine being a king? <laughs> Everybody in the palace wants you to die. <laughs> And so Ratabala says, can you order your, your followers to say, take some of this pain and share it, with me, share it out with amongst you so I don't have to feel so much? And he says, no, I have to feel that pain alone. Okay, this is what's meant by the world offers no shelter. Um, there's no one in charge. Um, the world has nothing of its own when it has to pass on, leaving everything behind. What does this mean? I've got granaries, I've got tor- storehouses, I've got lots of wealth. And Ratabala says, when you die, can you take that with you? No. That's what I mean. So here I have aging, illness, death. And then finally the fourth one, the world is a slave to craving. He says, suppose there was someone to come from the east and say there is a kingdom to the east with lots of wealth, very weak army. You could take it over. Would you take it over? The king says, of course. Here he is, 80 years old. <laughs> How about if someone came from the west and said there's another kingdom to the west, from the north, another kingdom to the north, the south. Someone coming from across the ocean, saying there's a kingdom across the ocean. That's very weak. You could take it. Would you take it? Yes. He said, that's what I mean. The world is a slave to craving. So, what he does is he gives the king examples and asks some questions about the examples. So that the king can come to his own conclusions. So this is one of his teaching techniques. Another example. 
And this is one of the prime uses of cross-questioning. The Buddha, a person asks a question in a way indicating that he wouldn't understand the response the Buddha would give, either the content of the response or the strategy with which it's given. So the Buddha draws an example, and it's usually an activity. This is interesting. When the Buddha is talking about explaining the practice, I have yet to find any similes where he says the person just kind of relaxes and accepts things as they are. His analogies for the practice are as somebody who's striving, somebody who's in battle, or someone who's mastered a skill, or is in the process of mastering a skill. And so the Buddha, to, to explain his teachings, will draw on skills an awful lot, especially if he wants to flatter the listener a little bit. It's a, it's a skill that the listener himself or herself has. And then ask questions about, when you practice this skill, what do you do? And then the person answers, and the Buddha says, okay, in the same way, when you're practicing the practice, or when you, sometimes there's questions about the Buddha himself when he's teaching, this is how, this is how it works. It's the same principle, something you already know. So this way he makes the practice similar to something the listener already understands. One of the prime examples we have in here is, King, is Prince Abhaya again. When after the Buddha gave that really clever answer to his first question, he says, do you sit around planning your answers beforehand? <laughs> or do they come to you on the spot? And the Buddha says, I'll cross-question you. Do you. Are you experiencing the parts of a chariot? In other words, it's like saying, do you really know cars? And the prince says, yes, I'm well known because I, you know, I really know chariots really well. Can you imagine? <laughs> if they had magazines back in that days, you know. <laughs> chariot. <laughs> chariot lover. <laughs> And so the Buddha says, you know, if someone asked you about the parts of a chariot, do you have to plan your answer ahead of time, or do you just answer right on the spot? He says, I answer right on the spot. And the Buddha says, in the same way, I know the element of the Dharma well enough, so when someone asks me a question, I can answer right on the spot. So he's questioning the person about the skill to get a framework for understanding the answer. There's a similar case where a person presents an argument against one of the Buddha's teachings, and the Buddha cites a hypothetical example that disproves the person's position, but then he questions them first about it to get the person to commit. Like there's a particular case where this one um, debater, his name was Sachika, comes to the Buddha. He says, I hear you teach that the f five aggregates are constant stressful and not self. Yes. This is a horrible teaching. Of course they're, of course they're yourself. They're, they're what, you, you know, what you control. And the Buddha says, I'll give you an example. Um, do the Vajians, the people he would brought in as his audience, do they have the right to execute those they have decided to have executed? Do they have the right to punish those they have decided to punish in the, in the, in the area of their kingdom? He said yes. In other words, they basically they have the power to do what they want with what's going on in the kingdom. Would you say the kingdom is theirs? Yes. How about your feelings? Can you say, my feelings will be thus and such? I have control over them. And such, I can't answer. Because the implication being, you cannot control your feelings, therefore how can you say that they're yours? So the Buddha had given him the example. In fact, such a kind of steps in. He says, not only do the Vajans do this, but also the great kings have this right, and all these other people have the right to you know, execute and fine and imprison people within their kingdom. So he kind of steps in. And the Buddha says, okay, can you say the same thing about your aggregates? And the answer is no. What's especially interesting about this is that Sajika stops. 
and then he sees this yaksha up in the air who says, if you don't answer the Buddha, I'm going to split your head into seven pieces. <laughs> and so he finally, finally answers the Buddha. So that's the case. That's one of the, the most effective ways of arguing with somebody is to give them an example, question them about the example, and then they've committed themselves to a particular interpretation of the example. Then you, you move in. Uh, I'm actually a little puzzled. I have read that passage and just a little puzzled about that. Um, when we meditate, we do meditate in such a way that it is easeful. Mm -hmm. So we're exerting some control. We are exerting some control mm -hmm. over the feelings. Mm -hmm. So to say that the feelings are not self would not be entirely true, at least to the extent that we are exerting control over the feelings during mm -hmm. meditation, right? Right. So, why is it that uh, that uh, the Buddha is telling such a that do you, do you exert total control over your feelings? Okay, so... We're talking total control. And if this were really you or yours, you would exert total control over it. I see total control mm -hmm. okay so other than total control there is uh, there is always yeah, if there's no element of control then what could you do there'd be no path that's right so uh, at least to uh, to the extent that you do have some control you can call it uh, well you at least te temporarily tentatively you fabricate a sense of self around well the, the Buddha talks about having a, your, a sense of yourself as something you can depend on your the self is its own mainstay um, you, you love yourself, so that's why you practice. Mm. You have an element of conceit, saying other people can do this, so can I. Mm. And the same seems to so go... So you have, you have, a, you know, have a, what do you call it, a provisional self. Provisional self. But then when you don't need it, I mean, it's part of your strategy. Your sense of self is a strategy, your sense of not-self is a strategy. So in a way, it almost seems like... I mean, maybe this is the question, this is the... Uh, underlying question, maybe. Uh, when the question is asked about uh, around this whole issue of self, why is the Buddha simply setting aside the question instead of giving an giving a, maybe an analytical answer, saying, "Well, I don't mean to say that there is a self. I don't mean to say that there is no self. What I mean to say is that you should use your sense of self in a strategic manner." Instead of saying that, why does he? Why does he just completely put that question aside? Ask him. <laughs> I mean, because he talks about I making and my making in so many places. Uh huh. Yes. I mean, I'm, sometimes you think he's, he's he's talking to a specific person with specific issues, like in the case of Rajagota. He, the Rajagota didn't, didn't even bother to ask, ask the Buddha why he didn't answer. Right. He just got up and left. Right. At least Ananda did. Ananda did, yeah. Uh, and so, okay, so if somebody asked why you didn't ask, answer that question, then he would have then answered. He would have answered. Mm -hmm. okay. So finally, there are two cases where the Buddha is encouraging you to cross-question yourself. 
<clears throat> one is when he says, when you're off meditating on your own, ask yourself about your actions, ask yourself about the traits of your mind. Read your mind and ask yourself, are there any qualities in my mind that I need to abandon? One of his most effective analogies, he said, when the sun sets in the evening, you remind yourself, this could be my last sunset, am I ready to go? Are there any qualities in my mind that would make it difficult for me to let go and, and just pass on? And if there are, work on those now. The same thing in the morning when the sun rises. This could be your last sunrise. Are you ready to go? So he's asking you to turn and look at these qualities in your mind as you're acting. What kind of qualities are developing? Are they skillful qualities? If they are, continue in that line of, line of action. If they're unskillful, maybe you should change. And then finally, related to that is when the Buddha is sitting there with these people and asks them, is your form self, is your form constant or inconstant? He's asking you to look at your experience of form. Is it constant or inconstant? Feelings. And then it's okay. If it's inconstant, is it easeful or stressful? It's stressful. If it's stressful, he goes on to ask, is it worth claiming as yourself? Now notice he's not having you come to the conclusion there is no self. He says, is it worth claiming? If it's changing on you and it's stressful, if you can't control it, why do you cling? Is it worth it? And at certain stages in the path, it's worth it for some things. But when you get to the point where the Buddha is asking you this question across the board, you know, you, you're probably more advanced on the path. And it goes through all, all five aggregates in the same way. So these are the ways the Buddha would use the, the strategy of cross-questioning. A few more things about when the Buddha in debate before we move on. <clears throat> the Buddha had certain sort of strictures on what he would say. First, it was true, beneficial, and timely. He would enter a debate never simply to defeat an opponent. There are times when the, the, an opponent would come, basically just picking a fight, and the Buddha would avoid. There's one time once this guy comes up and says, "How oh, so? You're, you're the Buddha, huh? Um, what kind of teaching do you teach?" And the Buddha said, I teach the kind of teaching that does not get me involved in useless arguments. <laughs> Stymied. <laughs> it's like that time I was sitting on a plane, and every now and then I get to fly business class, and you meet the worst people on business class. <laughs> I was flying back from D.C. last year, and this guy was sitting next to me, and he was on the phone talking about to somebody back in San Diego about how he had just met with Jeff Sessions and this, 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 this. So he puts down the phone and turns to me, okay, you're Buddhist, right? Teach me something. Oh. <laughs> and so I said, well, try to behave in a way that's harmless. Ah, oh, that's for people who don't live in the real world. So I said, okay, that's the end of that conversation. <laughs> but, yeah. So the Buddha, with set conditions, one, he, there's one case where he's, he's going to talk to Ubali. Ubali, the householder, has come to challenge him. He says, if you will confer taking a stand on the truth, we might have some discussion. And for the Buddha, something is true not only if it corresponds to the facts, but also if you're being consistent in your representation of the facts. That's what's shown in that discussion. There's another case where this other layperson comes to him, and he says, if you allow of me what should be allowed, protest what should be protested, 
And further, cross-question me directly then and there on the meaning of any statement of mine you don't understand. In other words, don't just mock my statements. If there's something you don't understand, ask me. So he's setting good conditions for a debate. Let's be fair. If, something, if, if I make a good point, admit that I've made a good point. If I've made a bad point, tell me I've made a bad point. And, then, and on these conditions, we can have some discussion. There's another place where he talks about the kinds of people who merit getting into debate with. One is there are basically two general qualifications. One is they're intellectually competent to handle the debate. So in other words, they know if they've been defeated. They know a good argument. Um, they know the standard procedures for, for following an argument. And then they're also the person has to be morally fair. They don't wander off topic. They don't avoid the question. They don't ridicule you for making little mistakes. Okay, these are the kinds of people that, that are worth getting into debate with. If, if they don't meet these standards, the Buddha says, just don't get involved. And the question is, why does the Buddha debate people? Because he realizes that right view is really right and beneficial. There's no compassion in leaving people in wrong view, if you, if you can avoid it. So there are some people who have some legitimate objections, so you want to deal with them. But if the person is coming just to pick a fight, you avoid. In this way, the debate is handled the same way you would handle an accusation. When we're making accusations in the Sangha, our purpose should be the rehabilitation of the person. If they've committed an offense, let's get them out of the offense, not just to punish. In the same way, if you see someone coming to debate you and you have compassion on them, get the person out of wrong view if you can. So the Buddha would debate when he felt that it was useful and kind. One of the striking features in many of these questions that the Buddha has you ask yourself is he keeps using the concept of I, me, myself. Do I still have any characteristics in myself that would make it difficult for me to go? Even in the practice of mindfulness, do I have any hindrances within me? Do I have any of the factors awakening within me? So even in the questions there, there's still a use of I and mine if it's needed on the path. Because you have to realize, okay, I'm responsible for these qualities in my mind. I've got to take care of them. So at that point, when you're at that stage of the practice, you still need the concepts of I and mind. There's one special example, which is in Majjhima 109. Is that in the readings? I didn't put it in the readings. The Buddha's been asked a series of questions by one monk on the five aggregates. And he talks about how the five aggregates are, are not self. <clears throat> and so one of the monks in the audience says, hmm, um, if the five aggregates are not self, then what self will be affected by the actions that are done by what is not self? Typical question, okay, if there is no self, you know, who's the agent and who's, who's, who's going to be receiving the, re the results? And basically saying, hey, look, if there's nobody doing it, 
I can get away with anything because nobody's going to be punished. That's what it comes down to. And the Buddha says, it may occur to some foolish person out there <laughs> to try to bypass the Buddha's teachings by this line of reasoning. And what he does, he puts the question aside, and then he starts using that questionnaire. Monks, you know, is your form constant or inconstant? It's inconstant. And it goes down the line. And basically he's showing, okay, this is the proper use for that teaching on not self. Not to assume, okay, if there is no self, then what's, what are the consequences? He's basically saying, if you look at the aggregates and you see that they're not worth holding on to, then you let them go, you gain release. Sixty monks become arahants. That's the proper use of that teaching. So he shows it by putting the question aside and then cross-questioning the monks in the right way. So it's one of the more dramatic uses of questions about how the not-self teaching is to be used as a strategy, as opposed to saying, well, if we assume there is no self, then you know, what can we get away with? Any questions on the cross-questioning? So when this one monk had the thought, uh, if there is no self, then I can get away with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Buddha was teaching this teaching on not-self. Mm -hmm. So that one monk was probably not ready for that teaching. He was probably still not yet grounded in mm -hmm. mundane right view. Right. Was that Okay. Because the Buddha was giving the teaching because there was another monk in the assembly who was asking him questions about this. And the other monks were ready for There were 60 awakening. monks who were ready. Ready for awakening. Mm -hmm. So for their sake, he taught. But then he also showed the proper use of that particular teaching, which is not to say, well, if we assume that there is no self, then what are the consequences? Mm. What we're doing is we look at your experience and say, the things I'm holding on to, are they worth holding on to? Mm. And when you can come to the conclusion that they're not worth it, you let go. Mm. And you get release, which is much better than coming to some sort of conclusion about if there is no self, right. what can we conclude? And in a way, because this monk was there in that same setting, in a way it's kind of useful for all of us also to know that, hey, this teaching is not to be used in irrelevant contexts, in a way. Right. Not to be taken in out of context, yeah. When the manager asks a question, it's important. As I remember that sutta, it seemed like the monk was trying to outsmart the Buddha. And the Buddha said, uh, You're trying to bypass the Buddha. Trying to outsmart me? Trying to bypass, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, my take on it was he was trying to. Uh, I know this records, I can't use that word. He's being a smart human being. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what the Buddha's getting down upon. Mm -hmm. Th that's part of it, but uh, it, yeah, because I mean, there, I mean, there are a lot of people who, who reason precisely the way that monk was reasoning. Hey, if there is no self, then there's nobody to, to receive the results of the action, so it doesn't really matter what I do. I can get away with anything. We had a similar, I had a similar question last year when I was teaching in, in Cambridge. I was talking about how you know there's there's Suffering is clinging, and then as you're following the path, there's going to be a certain element of clinging in the path. Aha! You're saying that there's going to be suffering in the path. He said, well, of course. 
when you sit and meditate, is it all pleasure? No. <laughs> there's, going to be, there's going to be some fighting. There's going to be some struggle. But it's worth it. I heard somebody say the other day that, you know, if you sit there normally and you have an itch, you just scratch it, no big problem. But if you decide I'm going to sit and I'm not going to move, all of a sudden this little tiny itch becomes a bigger issue than it would have been otherwise. So therefore, do not make a vow not to move. <laughs> Simple pleasure calculus. And he's missing the point. Okay, sometimes you have to make a big issue out of the, out of the itch in order to learn something about the itch, you know, learn something about your reactions. So the pleasure calculus is not that simple. Any other questions? Yes. So as one experiences the consequence of uh, the bad karma at the current moment, mm -hmm. if, uh, if one uh, assert the uh, non-self, view or dispassion from the five aggregate. Five yeah. So that to to relieve suffering. So that would be a skillf skillful way. That's one way of doing it. The other way is to as the Buddha said, is to look at what you're doing. What are you clinging to right now? And exactly how are you clinging to the aggregates? I mean there there are four ways of clinging and identifying them as a self or belonging to the self. That's just one. The others have to do with, okay, is this getting in the way of my desire for central thinking? Is this preventing me to, from doing something that I'm really attached to doing, habits and practices? Is this going against some of my views about the world the way the world should be? In other words, like innocent people like me should not suffer. Well, how do you know? So ask yourself, okay, exactly what am I clinging to that I need to let go of? So by doing these, you could actually kind of lessen your bad karma? In well, you can lessen the impact of the bad karma on the present moment. The Buddha gives some, a whole series of trainings. His, his famous analogy is of a lump of salt. If you take the lump of salt and you put it in a small cup of water, you cannot drink the water because there's so little water. If you take that same lump of salt and you put it in a large river, assuming the river is clean, you can still drink the water in the river because there's so little salt compared to the water. In the same way, if you make your mind immeasurable, i.e. you do the Brahma-viharas, and you also develop yourself the ability not to be overcome by pain, not to be overcome by pleasure, you develop your discernment, seeing where the clinging is, you develop your virtue, you will suffer less from the past bad karma. This, this is an important list of skills to know. You're laughing. What is it? Okay. okay. We end up with questions to be put aside. There are basically two kinds of questions the Buddha would have put aside. There's the questions he put aside out of politeness, and the questions he put aside because they lead away from the point of the teachings, 
and they frame their issues in terms of the existence of a self or the nature of the world outside. In terms of the politeness, I'll give you one example. An actor comes to see the Buddha, and he says, I've been told by my teachers that if, um, if I entertain people and make them laugh and have a good time, that when I, when I go to, when I, after I pass away, I'll go to the heaven of laughter. And what does the Buddha have to say about that? And the Buddha says, don't ask me. He says, no, no, I really mean it. What, what does the Buddha have to say? He asked him three times, which in India, of course, meant, I'm really serious about this. I want the answer. And so the Buddha said, okay, I can't get away from you on this one. If you spend all your time acting in such a way that gives rise to greed, aversion, and delusion in yourself and in your audience, then when you pass away, you go to the hell of laughter. In the heaven of laughter, they laugh with you. At the hell of laughter, they laugh at you. (laughs) And so the actor breaks down and cries. The Buddha says, see, that's why I didn't want to answer. He said, no, I'm not crying because of your answer. I'm just crying because I was lied to by my teachers. So then the Buddha teaches him the Dharma, and he becomes becomes a lay follower. This suit is probably one of the reasons why you don't see Terabot monks palling around with actors and actresses down in Los Angeles. <laughs> so the Buddha would, he would usually not answer questions about livelihood unless he was pressed. You know, this is my livelihood. What does the Buddha have to say about it? He says, don't ask. Unless the person is really serious. Because he was not the kind of person to go on a campaign against certain forms of livelihood. I mean, if you think, think about his teachings, he says, hey, you don't want to kill, you don't want to steal. If your livelihood involves killing and stealing and lying, find another livelihood. But it's up to you to make that decision. But in terms of condemning a particular occupation, the Buddha would not do that. Okay. Matter of etiquette. Another type of etiquette was he would not criticize non-Buddhist teachers by name when he was talking to lay people. Someone comes to him and says, you know, this, this teacher's over here, is he really awakened? And the Buddha says, don't ask. And does this teacher teach the Eightfold Noble Path? If he does, then, he's, then, then you can find awakening in that path. Otherwise, you can't. It depersonalizes the, the issue. So those are the questions here to put aside out of politeness. Now the one, ones that you put aside because they frame the issue wrong. These are probably much more interesting. One set of questions has to do with the existence of the self. There's this one sutta where Vachagoda comes to the Buddha and asks him, is there a self, is there no self? The Buddha doesn't answer. He gets up and goes away. And then Ananda asks, you know, why didn't you answer him? And the Buddha says, if when I was asked by him if there was a self, I said there was a self, that would be siding with the eternalists, which is an extreme form of wrong view. If I said, when asked by him, there was no self, that would be siding with the annihilationists, the idea that after, after death is just total annihilation. Um, if I said that there was a self, would that be conducive to the insight that all phenomena are not self? No. And if I had told him that there was no self, he'd be even more confused than he is now. <laughs> and so some people listen to this and they say, well, maybe if somebody else had answered the question, asked the question, the Buddha would answer differently. There is, however, another passage where the Buddha is talking to the monks in general. He says, basically the questions, do I exist, do I not exist, what am I, who am I, these are questions that are not worth answering, not worth paying attention to. So in that case, it's across the board. And the questions that are worth answering have to do with what is stress, what is the cause of stress, how can it be put an end to? 
So questions about the existence of a self get you tied up in wrong view. He says it becomes a, a jungle of wrong views, a writhing of wrong views, a thicket of wrong views. And you look at the history of Buddhist Buddhist philosophy, you know, after a couple of centuries they finally did conclude that the Buddha taught there was no self, and there was just, there's been trouble ever since. Because then you have to explain all kinds of things. How do, you have, how do you have a memory? How can there be rebirth? Those kinds of things. Whereas the Buddha put it aside, and he says, basically, you, you do a process of I-making and my-making, and then the question is, because that is a form of karma, when is it, when is it skillful and when is it not? And he will give you some examples, there are some examples in the canon where he does talk about types of I-making and my-making that are skillful. There's one where he takes, he says, making the self as your governing principle. If you're starting, if you're getting discouraged on the path and you want to give up, you ask yourself, when I got on this path, I wanted to do this because I wanted to put it into suffering. Do I not want to put it into suffering anymore? In other words, do you love yourself still? And that's your way of motivating yourself to stick on the path. Now, the Buddha in these, in these cases is not making a case for agnosticism in general. Each time he th refuses to answer the question, and the person sticks around long enough to find out, the Buddha will explain why he doesn't answer the question. In most often cases, is this question comes from a kind of craving that we don't want to encourage. Like the question is, you know, if after awakening, will I not exist, do I exist, or both, or neither? You're still kind of you're still holding on to something. Your sense of me as a being, and wherever there's me as a being, there's going to be attachment. You cannot carry your attachments into nirvana. And so that's a question you, the, the Buddha would put aside. If, however, someone is trying to be agnostic about what is skillful and what is not skillful, he called them ill wrigglers. And in many of the cases, he ex explains why they're afraid. It's one is they're afraid of clinging. You've probably seen people like this. I don't want to have an opinion. I would be clinging to my opinions. And says so that's not a reason not to have an opinion on what's skillful and what's not. You need to know these kinds of things. If you're going to put an end to suffering, there has to be a sense of what is and what is not skillful. And there are other people who are afraid. If I take a position of what's skillful and not skillful, there are people who are sharp in their dialectic, and they will come in and they shoot my position to pieces. And so it's basically out of fear that they don't take, take a position. And then there's another one where the, where the person is quoted as saying this. He says, do I think that there is the dialogue that exists after death or not, does not exist after death? I don't, ta I don't think in those terms. I don't think not. I don't think not not. <laughs> and the Buddha said, this is because this person is exceedingly stupid. <laughs> That you, you can wiggle your way out of, out of a position, and that you, that you somehow come out victorious. Okay. One of the teachings that the Buddha uses to put aside a lot of questions is the teaching on dependent co-arising, his list of the factors of how suffering gets caused. And it's interesting to note about this list is that one of the issues that has plagued Buddhist philosophy for, for millennia now is the question of, is the Buddha referring to events happening in the moment, in the mind moment by moment, or is he referring to events happening in the world outside, 
over many lifetimes? And the answer is both. In other words, the, the process is something that takes the same process that happens in the mind moment by moment is also played out at, in, the, in, in the universe at large. But what's the, the problem with asking these questions is that you're taking either the world or yourself as the frame in which dependent co-arising happens. And it says, it's another case where we have to switch the frame around. The frame is dependent co-arising. This is how suffering happens. Your sense of the world is created as part of that f- process. Your sense of yourself is created as part of that process. And so you look into the process to figure out, well, how do I learn how not to create these things? Because this is, this is creation, creating becoming. A sense of your identity within a particular world of experience centered around a desire. And so when people would ask the Buddha questions about dependent core arising, like, who's craving? Who's clinging? The Buddha said, I, don't ask that question. And then there are other cases where the Buddha would be asked a question and he says, to avoid answering a question, that question, look at dependent core arising. So it, this is one of his ways of getting out of those questions by saying, look at this question as part of the process of dependent core arising. It's, it's part of the either some questions are part of the way of getting out of, the, of suffering, in that taken in the context of that process. Other questions get you further in. For example, he, he was asked the question: Is the world a oneness? We hear a lot about this. You know, the realization that we're all interconnected. It's <laughs> going to be awakening. But the Buddha says, no, in order to gain insight into things, you have to see them as separate. But at the same time, he, whether the world is a oneness or the world is a plurality, the Buddha says he does not take a position on that question. What he does take a position is, look, look at how suffering gets created. So dependent arising, co-arising is, is a teaching that's used to cut through a lot of questions taking a position either way on a particular question. Okay, now when we look at the different types of questions that the Buddha puts aside, there's one way of looking at them when we classify them according to the topic. And it comes down to the concepts of becoming, as I said, your identity in a world of experience. For example, there are questions about the metaphysics of the cosmos. Is it eternal? Is it non-eternal? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Is it a oneness? Is it a plurality? Put it aside. Questions about the nature and existence or non-existence of the self. And then questions about whether an awakened person exists or doesn't exist or both or neither after death. This last category, however, is actually an extension of the second one. Because after all, if you have a self, if you really have a self, then it's going to be left over after awakening. If you don't have a self, there's not going to be any self after awakening. So those, those two categories are connected. And then the Buddha explains why he avoids these questions. They lead to craving for more becoming. And so in order to discourage you to have more craving for becoming, says, look, don't think in these terms. Think in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And so when the Buddha is explaining why he doesn't answer these kinds of questions, he explains why he, 
it's not out of lack of knowledge that he doesn't answer. I mean, actually, he's, it's because of his knowledge that he does. And all it comes down to, where is the origin of these questions? They come from unskillful mind states. And they also sees the immediate and long-term karmic effect of trying to answer these questions. They will lead to more becoming. And they also sees the advantages of just putting the questions aside. That's the kind of knowledge he has. He looks at the question as a type of karma. And, as, and with every mind state, the question is, what kind of, every kind of karma, what kind of mind state does it come from? What kind of karma consequences does it have now and in the future? And so if it's going to be unskillful, it comes from an unskillful mind state or leads to something then that involves more suffering or harm, you don't get involved with it. It's a kind of, it's a kind of action to be abandoned. So let's look at some of the questions the Buddha puts aside. Okay, the Brahman cosmologist comes to see the Buddha. He says, does everything exist? That's the senior form of cosmology. Does everything not exist? That's the second form. Is everything a oneness? That's the third form. Is everything a plurality? That's the fourth form. He said, avoiding all these extremes, the Buddha teaches the Dhamma via the middle. He starts out with the factors of dependent core rising. Are there any questions on that point? The floating mic? In most of the cases where people are asking questions which he tends to put aside, it seems like the people are not even ready for... Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, are they ready for dependent co-arising? You wonder. So, even you wonder? Yeah, because like in the case of that cosmologist, you wonder, yeah. would he understand how, what the Buddha was saying? Right. So. I wonder why the Buddha was giving a teaching on dependent co-arising to him mm-hmm. when maybe... Uh, well, he's offering an alternative way of looking at the world. And we don't know ex- exactly to what extent he explained the different factors of dependent co-arising. Uh-huh. Like he may have gotten to, you know, when there's a passage where the Buddha defines the world as your experience of the six senses, which is one of the factors in dependent co-arising. Okay. Now, what we may have here may be just a shortened version of the talk. Okay. That's okay. you always have to keep in mind. We don't know if we got the whole talk. I see. So he might have... Because the thing that, that, I'm, that is occurring to me is maybe the more relevant teaching for him would be mundane right view. And so why is he teaching dependent co-arising? Maybe he's teaching mundane right view through the... Either that or he's the, the guy's coming with a you know, fairly advanced intellectual question. So he says, oh, okay, you want to be intellectual and advanced? I'll show you. Uh-huh. So he's taking portions of the dependent co-arising and showing him that there mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. much more, there's depth to this teaching too. Because yeah. okay. he's, he's basically showing that 
the world, we think of the world outside as the context in which we function. Mm. And he's showing here, your sense of the world is simply experience of the six senses, which is conditioned by fabrications, consciousness, name and form, contact, mm. or name and form. Okay. And then it will lead to these other things. So he's looking at the world as a type of karma. Whereas if we had just simply given him a teaching on mundane right view, he would have said, well, this is just a mundane this, this teaching. Is, this, is not, this is not relevant to what I asked. Right, okay. Tanajan? This refers to something you mentioned a moment ago, and I didn't quite catch all of the distinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's rooted in this first passage also. Um, having a view of everything as a oneness in contrast to having a view of everything as a plurality and then the an understanding that we do hear quite often seeing oneness is a, either either is awakening or a path to awakening um, as distinct from the necessity of seeing separations and distinctions as the path to awakening can can you talk a little bit more about these both how when when phenomena arise, the Buddha says, if you want to gain insight into them, you have to see them as something separate. Now, he doesn't say separate from what, but you can interpret it, meaning separate from other phenomena, separate from the observer. In other words, you're not identifying with it as belonging to you. It's simply an event that's happening, but you can watch the event coming and going. Now this, this, this gets into his analysis of, of self. If you can see your sense of self arising and passing away, that's obviously not yourself, because you're still there watching it. Mm-hmm. This, um, this makes sense to me, and I, I, uh, I just wanted to be sure I was clear about the connection with this, uh, this passage on views of everything as a oneness. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that as the frame of reference in which phenomena are, are arising and passing? Well, the Buddha says, don't use that frame. Yes. The frame you want to use is look at them in terms of dependent core arising. But this phenomenon is related. Where does this fit within the context of dependent core arising? Like you see, sensory con- you see, sensory contact or sensory contact arising. Okay, you know that this is comes after name and form comes after fabrications consciousness. And so, if you really want to understand this, you've got to pull back further into the into the into the pre- preceding conditions. Rather than sitting and um, just analyzing the world as a thing, right? In some sort of static view or some static frame as an idea of a oneness or a plurality, or of the world as being the framework in which dependent arising happens. Mm-hmm. Okay, here the Buddha goes into the questions that are not fit for attention. Start, look at this, the page of, top of page 10. This is how he attends inappropriately. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what was I in the past? Shall I be the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I be in the future? What's more interesting is, else is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where is this being come from? Where is it bound? And then the Buddha goes on, if you, when you reflect in these ways, there are six possible views you might come up with. Actually, there are more than this, but he gives you a basic list. One is, I have a self. Or the view, I have no self, is established as fixed, true and established. 
or the view it is precisely by means of self that I perceive self. That would be Leibniz, if you have any background in Western philosophy. You perceive yourself through yourself. Or the view is it is precisely by means of self that I perceive not self, that is also Leibniz. Or it's precisely by means of not self that I perceive self, that would be Kant. Kant. Immanuel Kant. Or the view that is this very self of mind, the knower and the sensitive here and there to the ripening of good and bad actions, is a self of mind that is constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. Okay, all of these views can come to you when you start when you're asking the wrong questions. What am I? Do I exist? Do I not exist? Those are the questions the Buddha said. Just put those aside. You want to look at your sense of self as an action in the context of dependent core arising. So what, what, what things do you do pay attention to? You attend appropriately to the question of this is stress. Okay, you have to look in your experience. Where is the stress? This is the origination of stress. We're getting to the bottom of the, the passage. This is the cessation of stress. This is the way leading to the cessation of stress. As you tend appropriately in this way, three fetters are abandoned to you. Self-identity view, uncertainty, and grasping at habits and practices. So again, you're looking at, in terms of the Four Noble Truths, remember the Four Noble Truths are descriptions of skillful and unskillful actions and their results. Craving is an unskillful action. The Eightfold Path is a skillful action. Suffering is the result of unskillful actions, and the cessation of suffering is the result of skillful actions. So this gets us back to those orig original, you know, the categorical answers. So instead of looking at the question of, you know, do I, do I not exist, those are the questions that were said, just put them aside, don't bother. Questions on that passage? And the one with Vachagoda, we've already gone over that. Oh, question? Dead? I really like the idea of questions that are put aside. It seems mm -hmm. that David Hume must have been influenced by, by Buddhism, since you're you mentioning European philosophers. But I wanted to ask something. Maybe it's a, a question to be put aside. Is it required to act in a moral way that you have to think about how your karma might affect your potential rebirth or or suffering in the in your current life mm -hmm. or isn't it enough that somehow you just know that you should behave and follow these precepts and behave this way without any some kind of afterlife threat okay um there are times when your survival is at stake. 
And you say, hmm, I need to survive. If you don't believe there's anything after life. That, that would be a case where it would make a difference, I would think. Because there is, you know, the Buddha has different versions of his, his basically his wager thing, that it's, it's better off to believe in karma. But one place where he says, you know, if... if that you, sounds like Pascal. It's very similar. Except it makes more sense than Pascal. Pascal was saying this proves God. It doesn't prove God. I mean, it might prove some Indian deity. We don't know, you know. It doesn't prove who's... I mean, what Pascal is basically saying is there's some order to the universe that, where your actions really are rewarded. Okay. That's, all he's, that's all he's proving. But the Buddha has another version where he says, okay, as long as you're acting on goodwill, and you develop goodwill for all beings, you know, okay, I will act on skillful intentions based on my goodwill. And if there is rebirth, I'm okay, I'm safe. If there is no rebirth, I've lived an honorable life. That's what it comes down to. And if you're satisfied with that, okay. Okay. Passage 175. Here is the Buddha explaining dependent core arising. And this monk says, wait a minute, which is the aging death and whose is the aging and death? It was, that's not a valid question. If one were to ask, which is the aging and death, and whose is the aging and death? If one were to say, the aging and death is one thing, and the aging and death is something or somebody else's, both of them would have the same meaning, even though their words differ. In other words, this person is trying to put, there's a somebody who is doing the things, and there's somebody who is experiencing the things in dependent core rising. When you're looking at dependent core rising, those, those push, those, Notion should be put aside. You simply look at the process as it's happening on its own terms. When there's a view that the soul is the same as the body, there is no leading of the holy life. When there's a view that the soul is one thing, the body is another, there's no leading of the holy life. He's saying that basically these two positions are equivalent. And so avoid these two extremes. You simply look at things as events arising and passing away. Through, through the process of conditioning. What, what is the condition for what, in terms of events and actions? So in this case, the person is trying to apply a context of this, this process of dependent arising belongs to somebody. This aging and death, these, this clinging, this craving belongs to somebody. And at that point in the practice, when you're looking at things in terms of dependent arising, you put those questions aside. You don't say there's nobody there, you don't say there's somebody there, you just look at the process. And 164, he goes on to say, when you have seen with right discernment that this dependent core rising and these dependently core-risen phenomena as they have come to be, he's talking here about stream entry. It is not possible you would run after the past thinking, was I in the past, was I not in the past? And it goes down the same list of questions that was last listed in Majma 2. And why is that? Because the disciple of the noble ones has seen with right discernment this dependent corizing, these dependent corizing phenomena, as they have come to be. In other words, you see them simply as processes. And that gets you out of the, process, the mind state that thinks in terms of becoming me in a world of experience. 
and just simply looking at things as, as processes. Any questions on that? It's getting late in the day. Four, it's after four, I'm throwing dependent core rising at you. <laughs> Just wondering, you know, as a less person less far on the path, is it more useful to just immediately set down the questions when you realize you're asking a question that's to be set aside? Or is it more important to understand the reason why it is to be set aside? Well again, the Buddha says it comes the questions we put aside come to come from a state of mind that is involved in clinging. And that you're, they're distracting you from the real issue is, what are you doing? When you think in those terms, that should be enough to say, this is, this is distracting me from what I'm doing right now. I, I'm more concerned is realizing that these are the questions I put aside. Because so many people say, no, the Buddha really did answer, there is no self. And you hear people arguing and arguing and arguing. And it's, it's good to realize, no, the Buddha was really clear across the board. You do not get involved in that question. Since we're beginning to run out of time, I'll just give you a quick survey of some of these remaining passages. In passage 192, You know, these, these wanderers are trying to say that the supreme person, the superlative person, the attainer of the superlative attainment, when being described, is described with one of these four alternatives, either existing after death or does not exist after death. Both exist and it does not exist, and neither exist does not exist. And then this one monk, Anurada, says, no, he's described in another way. And they said, hmm, we never heard this from any of these Buddhists before. Go, go back and check with the Buddha. So they addressed me as they would a newcomer or a fool. They got up from their seats and left. <laughs> and so, so it goes back to see the Buddha. And so the Buddha goes on to question him. First he gives the, the, the typical questionnaire. Is form constant or inconstant? Inconstant. Is it, is it easeful or stressful? Stressful. Is it proper to regard what is inconstant, stressful, subject to change that this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am? No. And then he says, do you, reform, do you regard form as the Tathagata, the Buddha? No. Same with the, with the other uh, aggregates. Do you think of him as being in form? Do you be elsewhere than form? Is he in feeling, elsewhere than feeling? So on with the aggregates. Do you regard the Tathagata as form, feeling, perception, fabrications, consciousness? No. Do you regard him as that which is without form, without feeling, without perception, without fabrication, without consciousness? No. He says, when he can't even pin down what the Tathagata is in the present life, how can you talk about him after death? In other words, you can't define him. And why can't you define him? Because he has no attachments. Now, as long as you have an attachment, we can define biology, we can define Elizabeth, we can define Michael, and by, by what you're attached to. We define ourselves by our attachments. The Buddha doesn't have to define us. 
we're defined by our attachments. This is the point of passage 199. He says, to what extent is one said to be a being? Is any desire, passion, delight, or craving for any of the aggregates? When you're caught up there, tied up there, you're said to be a being. Now, it's a, it's a word play in Pali, but it's making an important point. That you define yourself by your attachments. And so when someone has no attachments, you can't define them. You can't pin them down. When you can't pin them down, you can't say they exist or neither or both or whatever, or not existing. And then the question is, well, why do you want to define them? It's because you're craving. You're concerned about, after nirvana, will I still be me? Will there be anything left of me in nirvana? And the Buddha says, uh, John Sawat had a great comment on this. He said, when you, when you encounter the ultimate happiness, you don't care who's there, who's not there. Well, the happiness is sufficient in and of itself. I want to end with passage 182, the very last page. <clears throat> Sometimes we hear about how important it is not to cling to views. After all, it is one of the forms of clinging that causes suffering. And at the same time, there is right view. And as in the analogy of the path as a raft, you know, the, path, the raft stands for the Eightfold Noble Path. And one of the factors of the Eightfold Noble Path is right view. And that takes you across the flood of views. That's what the river stands for. So how does right view do that? Here's Ananda Bendika's answer. First he goes and he sees a, a group of wanderers. It's too early in the morning to see the Buddha. The Buddha's off having on his arms around. And so Ananda Bendika says, let's go check out some of these other wanderers, see what they're up to. And they see him coming. And they've been sitting and arguing with each other. And they see him coming and say, quick, quick, be quiet, be quiet. Here's a follower of the Buddha. They like quiet and quiet people. <laughs> if he sees that we're quiet, he may come our way. So they quiet down. And so they come and they ask, they ask him, well, this Buddha of yours, um, what are his views? And here is Ananda Bindika as a stream manner. He says, you know, I really don't know the full extent of the Buddha's views. Good answer. Well, how about the monks, the awakened monks? What are their views? I don't know the full extent of their views. What about your views? Yeah, I, know, I can tell you my views, but first I'd like to hear yours. And so they go down through their list. The cosmos is eternal, the cosmos is non-eternal, finite, infinite, so on down the line. And in each case, he says, for the person who says, for example, the cosmos is eternal, only this is true, anything else is worthless, this is the sort of view I have, his view arises from his own inappropriate attention or independence on the words of another. Now this view has been brought into being, is fabricated, will, dependently co-arisen. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will, dependently co-arisen. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stressful. This venerable one thus adheres to that very stress, submits himself to that very stress. And similarly for the other view standpoints. Okay, when this has been said, the wanderer said to Ananda Vindaga, We have each and every one expounded to you in line with our own view standpoints. Now tell us what views you have. His view is, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will, dependently co-arisen. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stressful. Whatever is stressful is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. This is the sort of view I have. They say, so, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, will, dependent, co-arisen. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stressful. You thus adhere to that very stress, submit yourself to the very stress. In other words, they're turning the accusation back against him. He says, no. 
Whatever is brought into being is fabricated will dependent arisen. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stressful. Whatever is stressful is not me, is not what I am, is not myself. Having seen this well with right discernment as it has come to be, I also discern the higher escape from it as, is, as it has come to be. In other words, this is teaching you to look at mental phenomena and see, okay, this particular view is something that's been put together. And you go down through all the unskillful views and realize that it's not worth holding on to me, holding on to as my view. Once you've taken care of all the other views, then you turn that back on right view itself. Say, this too has been fabricated, it's put together. I have to abandon this as well. And this is the only view that can allow you to do that. In other words, it clears away your attachment to other views, and then it also directs you back to itself, so you can let go of it. And that's when you get an awakening. When this was said, the rounders fell silent, abashed, sitting with their shoulders drooping, their heads down, brooding, at a loss for words. So Anandabindika leaves him there, <laughs> goes back and reports to the Buddha. And the Buddha says, good job. <laughs> so this is what it means not to cling to views. You use the view, of, you use the right view to let go of your other clingings, and then when you've taken care of that, then you turn it against itself. And it enables you to let go of it, too. Which is why we try to ask questions that are appropriate rather than inappropriate. In other words, you look at the view as a type of action. It is a type of karma. This is why we've been looking at things in terms of actions all the way along. That you develop skillful actions until the point where you don't need them anymore, then you abandon those, too. So, any questions on that particular passage? One, one question uh, is about the uh, notion of self that we actually just talked about. Um, when we when we wrapping up meditation. Uh, one of the things that you recommend often to do is to reflect on what went well. Mm -hmm. What did I do, and where, uh, where was I, or how how was that? What did it lead to, where, and so forth. So, um, in that in that sort of analysis, one is always one is sort of uh, analyzing oneself as the recipient of the results of what one has done just mm -hmm. just before the just prior to that so uh, the perception of oneself as you know the 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 meditator the meditator and the and the recipient um, of the of the pleasure say or uh, rapture or whatever it is and uh, uh, sometimes the pain of course and the recipient of that also uh, that is the is the is the notion of self mm -hmm. over there. So, at the moment of so or, or in, in when when a, so are you saying that because I, I, I was asking this in the in the context of nirvana? When you say that in the, in nirvana that you don't care, does that mean that the there is no perception of oneself as being a recipient? Right. Hmm. So, but then one is still doing. One is still. If you still have the perception of yourself as a recipient, it's not full awakening. 
Uh, but but then one does one still have the perception of of oneself as the agent? You have a memory of having done this. Ah, uh, okay. So you can see that, and you can, and it's natural for you to do only those actions that will lead to good results. Skin, as you see them, yes. As you see them, but yes. you don't perceive yourself as a recipient of the results. Is that right? Just, it's a gift from that point. Ah, uh, so always an arahant is doing everything as a gift yes. to the world. Because he doesn't need, or she doesn't need. He or she. Those yeah. results. Okay. Okay. So that that clarifies a lot. Okay, and then uh, on this last passage, passage one eighty two. All the views he is saying uh, are uh, he the only thing only thing that is different between the right view and all the views that it seems like is that he says uh, with right discernment he is able to see uh, how it has come to be and he's also able to discern the higher escape from it. Mm-hmm. So is that the only is that the maybe that's the reason why right view is superior to other views? Is that what he's trying it's, to say? It's superior because it can be used to turn against itself. Any clinging to itself, eventually you have to, you have to attack that as well. So is it just the general perception of the people in that time that views are good or views are superior if you can turn around the view or you can transcend the view itself? That's the Buddha's view. Oh, so the Buddhist view yeah. is that mm-hmm. a view is a good view if, it can, you, if can, you, can you can transcend, transcend itself. It, yeah. But that was not necessarily no, generally no, held. No. The general, okay. the general principle, principle was if you believe things to be a certain way, that is enough for your salvation. Now, have you ever heard that teaching someplace? R- oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. So, okay. So that's why I was concerned, uh, not concerned, uh, kind of confused because... It doesn't seem like it is obvious that this uh, is superior. It's just superior to the Buddhists. From the Buddhist point of view, it is superior. And, and they were basically trying to turn his critique of their views on him by saying, well, he's saying, hey, your problem with your view is you're clinging to it, you're clinging to stress. He's not arguing against the content of the view, he's content of arguing against the way the view is held, which was radically new in those days. And they say, well, you're holding to your view, too. Mm. He says, no, this view enables me to look around at the actual act of clinging and drop that as well. Right. That's right. the escape from the view. Right, okay. So that same thing holds to mundane right view. I mean, even the, even the idea of rebirth. So when people say uh, that you're clinging to this mm-hmm. idea of rebirth, it, it's useful to cling to it because we are able to g- transcend it at some point. Right. That's why it is right. useful mm-hmm. to you. But it's not something that we can we can we can say r- right now because we have not really realized it. Mm-hmm. Again, it's right it's right view, not right knowledge. Right. When the secular Buddhists say, "How can we be expected to know these things?" And the Buddha is not expecting you to know, know these them. things. Mm-hmm. He's asking you to adopt them as a working hypothesis. Okay, we're reaching the end of our time. There's just a few more concluding remarks I'd like to make. When we look at the Buddhist path of questions as a whole, we see there are several stages in how questions pay, play a role in the path. The first is there's the primary question to which the path is a response, and that is, 
who knows a way or two to stop this stress? In other words, your first reaction to stress is, Mommy, <laughs> Daddy, and from there it's you, somebody else, whoever. And finally get to the Buddha says, okay, I know how to put an end to this. It's looking at your own actions. There, the Bodhisattva's own questions that he asked himself is why he was acting in a particular way. The questions with he proposed another alternative course of action. In other words, he'd look at his actions and say, here I am subject to aging, illness, and death. Why am I looking for happiness in things that are also subject to aging, illness, and death? Is there another path? So he would propose other questions, propose other courses of action. He finally got to the questions that established the right view, the frame of right view and the appropriate attention. In other words, seeing things in terms of actions, cause and result, actions that were skillful that should be developed, actions that were unskillful that should be abandoned. Okay. Then there are the questions that refine that frame, and this is, these are the analytical and cross-questionings where the Buddha says, okay, you're, you, the question is on a good topic, but you're framing it wrong, let's reframe it. Or you've asked a question, but before I'm going to give you an answer, I want to make sure you're going to understand my answer before, you, before I give it to you. That refines the frame of categorical questions. There are the questions that test that frame by applying it to specific actions. In other words, here's the Buddha's standards for how your mind should be. Where are you in, in relationship to that frame? And then the questions that induce the right attitudes and mental qualities needed to keep you on the path. Um, for example, when the, the Buddha talks to Rahula about asking yourself about your actions, you're inducing attitudes of compassion, truthfulness, mindfulness, alertness, and heedfulness by asking yourself, before I do a action, what are, what are the results I, I expect out of it? If it's going to be skill, it's going to be harmful, just don't do it. If it's not going to be harmful, or I don't foresee any harm, go ahead and do it. While I'm acting, are there any bad action results coming up? If there are, I should stop. If they're not, I can continue. After I'm done, I should reflect back on the, on the long-term consequences. So this, this is a, a pattern of asking questions that you apply to yourself at every level of the path. I don't have time right now, but you go back home and look into Majjhima 121, and you see the same framework as being applied to states of concentration. I'm in the state of concentration. Is there still a disturbance here? What, what, can I let go of the disturbance? The cause of the disturbance, of course, is something you're doing. So you uh, drop that action, and then you move to a deep relative concentration. So these instructions he gave to Rahula apply across the board. If I act in a particular way, what are the results? If it's been unskillful, can I change? So some of the conclusions we come to is, remember, the big framework for the Buddhist teachings are the questions of, what actions are skillful and unskillful? What are the Four Noble Truths? It's not the three characteristics. The Four Noble Truths are the big framework. These frameworks carry duties. So they're not just truths that sit there. Once you accept them, you take them and you apply them to your own actions. And they provide a basis for deciding what should and should not be done. This was the Buddha's gift to us, as giving us a framework for looking at our actions to make up our own minds, giving, you know, taking into consideration what he had to say, how we look at our actions and make a decision, because we're constantly making decisions as we go through life. And he's giving us a framework to hold on to, to apply to our actions, to figure out which decisions have we made that went well, 
so we continue doing them. Which ones did not go well so that we can learn how to learn to, to do something else. That's his gift to us as a teacher. His teaching is about karma, but the teaching itself is also a kind of karma. The Buddha wants us to have the tools to stop stress and suffering. Learning is also a type of karma. It's up to us to bring the willingness to think in new terms, using our own honesty and our powers of observation to put an end to this problem, which is universal but is also very personal. Why are you suffering? Why is there this suffering? What am I doing? What can I change about what I'm doing? This is the kind of question you want to keep asking yourself. Until you get to the point there is no suffering, then you can put all the questions down. But you'll be asking yourself these questions all the way along the path until then. So, hope this has given you some good ideas about how to approach the practice. Thank you. <laughs>